to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute's Data Science Zoominar podcast. Our Zoominars feature interactive conversations with data science experts working across a wide spectrum of applications in industry, government, and academia. The conversations are moderated by faculty from the Department of Data Science at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode, Rafael Irizarry talks with Timothy Rebick from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute on the importance of representative samples in clinical trials. Today, we are very uh, fortunate to have Tim Rebick uh, talking with us. Uh, he is a professor here at Dana-Farber and also at the Harvard uh, School of Public Health. So his research focuses on the etiology and prevention of cancer with an emphasis on cancers with a genetic etiology and those that are associated with disparities in incidence or mortality by race. He's directed multiple large uh, molecular epidemiological studies and international consortia that have been used to identify and characterize genes involved in cancer etiology. Understand the relationship of allelic variation with bio chemical or physiological traits, explore interactions of inherited and somatic genomic variation with epidemiological risk factors. So today uh, we'll be talking about some of these more epidemiological aspects of cancer research. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. No problem. I am, you, we might get questions from the audience, which I'll be asking as well. Otherwise I'll get that ready here. Great. So everybody, if you have questions, just put it in the Q&A section and I'll try to get to them. All right, so in, in our in research hospitals like Farber, uh, it's, it seems to be the case that, that um, we focus on uh, treatment and when it comes to sci- the more basic science aspects of cancer research, it, we focus on basic biology, trying to understand cancer at the molecular level. But if, I, if I'm not correct, if I'm not mistaken, uh, historically, the biggest, uh, the mo- biggest improvement we've made in terms of fighting cancer and the, the effects of cancer on society has been through prevention. Is that right? Uh, or is that uh, a little exaggerated? Well, I mean, I think it's very correct to say that the big impact in the population on reducing incidence and mortality from cancer, just in terms of raw numbers, has been through prevention and early detection. That's, I think that's quite true. But I would also say that, you know, there, there, you can't have prevention and early detection without good treatment. And so, you know, they all go together. And Sure, absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> absolutely. Yeah. So putting, I, I guess I'm just pointing out, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, let me be clear. I'm not like yeah. putting them against each other. I'm just yeah. uh, pointing out that I, I think a lot of people that visit cancer research hospitals and they see what the research goes, they, they forget that this is also a very important part of, of cancer research. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and I guess I would say Dana-Farber and most other, or maybe all other uh, cancer hospitals that have a strong research component are really concerned with prevention and early detection. It's true, I would say that most don't have, uh, don't spend the same amount of effort and energy and resources in prevention and early detection, particularly in research as they might in uh, basic science or drug development. Um, And, you know, I think we could always do better. 
Sure, and and uh, and Farber does very well, I think, compared to others. We have a whole department or a yeah. division uh, dedicated to population uh, studies, uh, yes. and and um, that's that's great. We collaborate. Our department collaborates very closely with with that division. Exactly. So much of our research has been focused on determining risk factors for prostate cancer. Can you tell us a bit about the history of the large studies that you have you had to organize to 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 learn that, I, that's another thing that, that I think our audience would benefit from hearing about. Uh, sure. and, and by the way, I forgot to mention at the beginning that our audience uh, is mostly our department, but there's also other people that join. So mm -hmm. it's a lot of statisticians, computational biologists, software engineers uh, that, that work here at Farber and collaborate with, with many others. So I one thing I want them to hear about is is the, 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 the how challenging it is to to perform these studies, it's because you have to get a lot of people and you have to keep track of them, and yeah. and it's quite a quite a, a logistics operation. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I can focus on prostate cancer, but I can make some of the comments that are really gener generalizable to many cancers as well. Um, yeah, I think that the uh, evolution of the field has been that uh, small studies were undertaken uh, in isolated populations, high hospital-based populations uh, that identified some early risk factors for cancer or for prostate cancer. And um, they were largely biased. There was a lot of study bias. There was a lot of the methods were not optimized. And so there's a lot of noise in the system. And you'll see this because you'll hear uh, over the you know, decades, you'll hear reports in the news, oh, such and such is causing cancer. Such and such is like, you know, associated with your risk of having or dying of cancer. And, you know, sometimes those reports are correct, but by and large, they're not, or they're not replicated. And so people get very confused in the, uh, the general population, um, as well as uh, the scientific community, because there's all sorts of reports that come out, and it's very difficult to tease apart what's true and what's not. And um, in general, uh, it takes incredibly large, usually prospective cohorts, meaning hundreds of thousands of people with really good measures of exposure uh, with longitudinal follow-up to really tell us what's truly uh, an effect, what's truly a, an association. And maybe if we get lucky, we can talk a little bit about causation um, and if we add, add some more data to that. But I would say of all of the data that are out there, and this is not just true for prostate cancer, the majority of things that we have been told might be associated with cancer risk or not, or we're not sure. Um, a few things pop out as being really salient, and those are uh, very important uh, and maybe modifiable, maybe actionable in some way. In prostate cancer, there have been large, large studies, and I won't go over the list, but large, you know, really millions of people in part have, who have taken part in large prospective studies um, to identify prostate or other cancer risks. And after all of that, and decades worth of work, and really, really strong science, strong, well-done work, uh, literally involving millions of, of men pro followed prospectively, um, we really don't have any known hardly any known risk factors for prostate cancer after all wow. of that. The prostate cancer risk factors right now are um, age, race, particularly African-American men have higher risks, uh, family history, if you have a family history, uh, genetics, some high-risk high genetics and low uh, penetrance genes, um, height, 
maybe adult attained height, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe, and um, uh, obesity for mm -hmm. aggressive prostate cancer. So first of all, you know, all of the things that we've been thinking about diet, nutrition, pesticides, exposure, smoking, lifestyle, all of those things that have been studied so much have not really panned out as being things we can actually clearly say are risk factors for prostate cancer. So, wow, that's just incredibly frustrating because we've done good science and we still have not found a lot of things. And if you remember the list that I just gave you, almost none of those are really modifiable risk factors. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe obesity is a, a modifiable risk factor, but it's not easily modifiable. Um, and none of the others, you know, family history, race, those are not modifiable factors. So we have a lot of more thinking to do. Um, and, and, and just give you a, a caveat to that. Um, even though we as epidemiologists can't say that there are a lot of these other risk factors, I don't think any of us think that most of them are not risk factors. We just can't detect them using the epidemiological tools we have. Um, and so you might, you know, they, and, and so some of them truly may be null, but trying to prove the null is very difficult. Um, and so having knowledge about what's truly not a risk factor versus those that might have a tiny little effect on risk that we're really having a hard time defining is very difficult. Um, and if it's got such a tiny amount of risk, if it's got a odds ratio, hazard ratio, risk ratio, whatever of 1.01, do we even really care? Because it's, you might be able to modify it, but it's going to have such a minuscule effect on an individual or a population risk, maybe it really doesn't matter. So um, it's been really tricky and, and prostate's been worse than most, but I think you could make the same kinds of arguments for many other cancers. Um, so, you know, epidemiology absolutely has its limits. When you find a good one, like lung cancer and cigarette smoking, you're golden because you can do all kinds of things. But even in that very simple situation where cigarette smoking is strongly associated with lung cancer, we see how hard it is to modify that and mm -hmm. to, to, to do some, make that actionable. So it, epidemiology can, can tell us a lot and teach us a lot, but it's got a lot of limitations as well. So are they... What about other, what's another, smoking is the obvious one. What are the other ones that you would list as, as being discovered through, through observational studies? Um, so I think that, you know, smoking and many cancers, not just lung cancer, but smoking and many mm -hmm. cancers, um, the other kinds of exposures that I think are really prominent uh, in reproductive factors, uh, in many uh, uh, breast cancer, for example, uh, reproductive history is and, and hormone exposures uh -huh. are clearly be, have been defined by epidemiological kinds of associations. They're obviously also potentially modifiable. Some of them are modifiable um, and have a big enough impact that we can think about how to modify uh, risk. And that might be changing. So oral contraceptive use or hormone replacement therapy or some of these exogenous hormones their use has been changed by uh, observational studies in epidemiology. Other things like um, endogenous, you know, when you have your um, uh, menarche or you know, age at first full-term birth, those are much harder, obviously, or impossible to change. But yet we've learned a lot about um, uh, modifying exposures or modifying risk by understanding the underlying epidemiology of some of these factors. Um, the other big class is uh, infection. 
Um, so HPV and cervical cancer, HBV and liver cancer, um, mm -hmm. uh, H. pylori and uh, stomach cancer, to name a few. Um, those have been very strongly influenced by epidemiological studies and knowledge of the effect of these specific exposures. And those have led, of course, to things like um, vaccination or screening or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, treatment uh, of, you know, for example, uh, stomach cancer and uh, ulcers uh, with H. pylori infection. That's, you know, those, those observations have changed the way we think about ulcers and stomach cancer. So there have been quite a few. Um, there have been also some rare-ish exposures, meaning, uh, you know, so for example, the Hiroshima uh, bomb. We learned a lot about uh, epidemiological associations between individuals who were Hiroshima and Nagasaki survivors and their cancer risks. Um, but those are, you know, like very rare exposures and very unusual exposures. Uh, and we have a lot of those rare and unusual exposures, but very high level exposures that taught us a lot about cancer risks. Um, not necessarily, again, something that will end up being modifiable in and of itself, but taught us a lot about the etiology of disease that helps us uh, modify risk or, or manage risk. Well, so, that's right. Radiation, we, we, we knew that from before, though, right? We knew that from like when they, when they first started noticing a strong association between working with x-rays and yeah. getting cancer. Yeah. By the way, that, that reminds me of a question that maybe you can... Yeah, I, I I never uh I never got a good answer for this. So you know when you go to the dentist and they're gonna take X-rays. Yeah. They'll they'll put like something on your chest and yeah. then they'll leave they'll leave the room. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then they shoot your face with this thing. So yeah. What is it? How does that work? Like why am I? Why is the chest? But the chest is covered. But my face isn't. Like what is that? Is it because the cranium is a strong enough protector of of radiation? Um, I, you know, so the, the issue of x-ray exposures in general, not just dental x-rays, but chest x-rays and uh, other, other x-ray exposures um, have been studied uh, intensively. And I think the problem is that the level of exposure that you get from a dental x-ray or a chest x-ray or things like that are fairly low. Mm -hmm. uh, at least now, uh, you know, maybe yeah, it's like the sun might have more. Who know? I don't well, know. you know, and you know, you fly in planes and you get x-ray exposure and you know, there are also, so the, the issue is that um, a lot of these exposures are actually quite low uh, today. And so the problem in understanding risk is really being able to extrapolate below what we know are measurable levels of exposure that we think cause risk. And so can you extrapolate down to a single dental x-ray or a number of de dental x-rays over the course of your lifetime and mm -hmm. add that up to get enough information about the associated risk to really say, you know, beyond this certain threshold, you'll be, um, you're at risk, you're under a certain threshold, it really doesn't matter. And you, you were making up stuff a lot of the time because we don't have good data around these very low exposures. We can make the same argument about radon exposure, extremely mm -hmm. low levels of some of these exposures. We just don't have good measurement of those. And we don't have good studies that allow us to say these extremely low exposures are associated with a certain level of risk of whatever, cancer or whatever. So like they put the, uh, the, the, the lead vest on you, I think that's just um, you know it's it's a it's 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 fine. It doesn't hurt anything to do that. I don't know that that's necessarily based in a lot of evidence that the scatter from a dental X-ray is hitting your chest to the point that it is causing a lot of extra disease. 
but, uh, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that it's not really based in uh, knowledge of how much an X-ray or a series of X-rays um, are going to affect your risk versus mitigating, using things that are just easy. And even if the risk is close to zero, now it's zero. Uh, and you mitigate that risk because it's easy to put a, a, a lead shield on you and it doesn't cost mm -hmm. much and it doesn't hurt anything, you know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, I just want a helmet too, not just the... Yeah, you can, and you can have the helmet, but again, <laughs> you know, like, uh, do we do we know how much, and, and we do have estimates of all these things. It's not that we have no data, but, mm -hmm. you know, um, the, the risk of, let's say, brain tumors in people that have had a lifetime of dental x-rays, if we could even measure that, or if we have a good estimate of that, it's going to be low. Yeah. So right, is, right. is putting a, a lead helmet on going to make a difference? <laughs> I don't think we have enough data or knowledge to say that it's 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 worthwhile or, or what that would be. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, it's just, it just yeah. it seems so it seems so scary, especially when they leave the room and then well, and shooting think, at your face. And I think that there is a difference, you know, that low level radiation exposure, the risk is probably not zero, but it's small. Yeah. Um, so obviously, if it was something that caused a sufficient amount of risk, they wouldn't be doing it anymore. Yeah. You know, it, it would be it would be. Uh, not allowed or would they be doing it differently or you know the FDA or whoever it is that regulates these things would say wait a minute you have to stop and so the fact that they haven't stopped tells us that there is no risk that's so huge that it's but, uh, you know really but, a problem it's but how would they how would they know if it's a very small risk they, right. somebody's um, running studies constantly yeah. yeah, I mean, by the by these kind of observational studies that we're talking about, very hard to do. You can imagine who gets a dental x-ray, everybody, you know, like, and who gets it maybe once a year or something like that. And we want to, we need to follow people over many years, accumulating their exposure and then following them many years. If the risk is very small, you know, this is just like a power calculation you can think about. If the risk is 1.1, which I think would be kind of high in this situation. Mm -hmm. How many people over how many years to develop certain specific cancers would you need to detect that effect? Mm -hmm. And it's huge. You would need huge studies to do that. And there are huge studies that have tried to do things like that, but it's very hard to come up with these. Uh, and again, I, using dental x-rays is one that you can imagine any of the exposures out there. My, microwave, cell phones, yeah, there's a All lot of the of above. And, and again, people have studied this. It's not that people haven't tried and haven't done good studies. But the level of exposure and the level of association is so small that we kind of have to look at it at some point and say, it's small enough that we don't, we can't worry about it. We can't worry about all these exposures and risks that are at 0.001 or something like that. Maybe we can, maybe we decide we want to, but most of these exposures come up as null uh, with the epidemiologic data to the degree that we can do these studies. And again, not to say that we're doing bad studies, but there are limits of detection and also limits to what we consider are regulatable, modifiable or avoidable risks that we wanna take. So again, it, there, everything that we do in life is a risk benefit ratio. So is, it, is the risk of having a dental x-ray uh, worth having the dental x-ray because it's going to save your teeth because you're going to get, you know, you're going to be able to figure out you have cavities. What's the risk benefit ratio there? And I think the system has decided that the risk benefit ratio for having a dental x-ray is positive because you're going to have your teeth filled and take care of your teeth and you're going to have, you know, that's going to be a positive and the risk that we take is so low that it's worth 
you know, doing. Um, and so everything that we do is a risk, a cost benefit, a risk benefit ratio, and we need to sort of balance those with everything that we do. Okay. Um, and that, that's the, the bottom line. Nothing that we do is without risk. So one of our attendees is, is pointing out that the tech x-ray techs are exposed much more frequently than, yeah. than us. So, and they, they would, you would, we, we would probably see it there if it was an actual risk. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, a, I, that's a point I was going to raise that glad that someone did. Um, in general, we've, you know, the, a lot of the studies are on workers in these fields. So you can think of hair dye. Hair dye has always has been a, a, a source of concern about cancer risk. And so uh, you see sometimes uh, uh, beauticians uh, are at increased risk because they're being exposed so much compared to the, uh, the person whose hair is getting dyed uh, that, you know, it's again, it's a, it's a risk benefit ratio. And if you're exposed a lot, your risk is gonna be higher. And if you're exposed less, your risk is gonna be lower. And the question is, is it, um, is it is it a reasonable cost benefit ratio and can you do anything to mitigate your risk uh, in the process? Okay, we have our first question. So the, the there, this is a hard one and you, you alluded to it already. Would you say that we can know for sure from observational data that an exposure has a causal effect on some type of cancer or can we only identify associations uh, that allow us to intervene with certainty with RC with randomized control trials. Yeah, so there are two two questions there, which are both relevant. So um, we can know for sure uh, from observational data if there is causation involved. Um, so we can know that because there are criteria for causation. Uh, again, there's a lot of data that suggests you know causal inference. Uh, is possible from some data. Causal inferences can be made because we can um, eliminate the uh, bias or the um, uh, mediation effects or other factors that would uh, help us to understand something that is truly causal. And there are methodologies that will specifically make causal inferences. But I would say that the vast majority of observational data won't result in causal inferences. They will remain observation, uh, uh, associations because we can't eliminate uh, the biases, the mediator effects, the other things that, um, that would keep us from uh, a, causal, uh, a, a causal inference. Um, so uh, causal inferences can be made, but they are relatively rare from observational data. And so yeah, the, with, with smoking, we had paper after paper eliminating yeah. alternative hypotheses. And, right. and by the end, it seems like we can actually say it, it does cause, well, it, it increases your risk. It, it, oh. I mean, that's another distinction. Not everybody that smokes dies of cancer baths. So right. it's really right. that it causes a higher risk. But I think the key is in what you just said in the second question is um, the reason we want to know about causation is so that we can be sure we should intervene that we can develop interventions that are biologically motivated or whatever it might be. So I would say that, you know, do we need to know causally that smoking causes lung cancer or head and neck cancer or something like that? I would say um, we know enough from the epidemiological data without knowing causation or without knowing the biology of smoking induced lung carcinogenesis that we can tell people to stop smoking. Mm -hmm. I mean, so we have enough data from observational studies to make a, an interventional statement uh, and policy statements and things like that. And so the question to me really is, at what point do you have enough data, even if you can't prove causation, 
um, that you can do something that's interventionally beneficial. Um, and that's, to me, that's the question. And sometimes knowing that something is causal is required, sometimes it's not. I mean, I would say we can tell people to stop smoking. We don't know all the biology that underlies smoking uh, and its effect, but we can, do we need to, to tell people to stop smoking? No. Um, so again, I think that's, you know, to the second question, I think we can get enough um, clear knowledge about what's going on to either make policy or behavioral changes or drive a, a randomized controlled trial. And um, I think what, you know, there's a great example of uh, the, um, the carrot study. I don't know if you're familiar with the carrot study. It was done 40 years ago. Um, it was uh, uh, beta carotene uh, uh, interventions in smokers. So all the epidemiological evidence said that if you give somebody these micronutrients, beta carotene, they're li you're likely to limit lower uh, uh, lung cancer in heavy smokers. So they did this very large tens of thousands of person study um, with intervening with beta carotene on smokers. And what happened? Um, those in the intervention arm, those that received the beta carotene had higher rates of lung cancer than those in the control arm. So this is exactly the point that you're getting at. Um, we thought we had great observational data, or they did back then, 40 years ago, that this micronutrient, you know, a vitamin, vitamin A, beta carotene, would be enough to lower risk, and it increased risk. We didn't know enough about causation. We didn't know enough about biology then, uh, and we went ahead, and not me, but the people that did that then, went ahead and did a randomized controlled trial and made more cancer. So I think this is exactly right. Um, the point that is being made here, how can we be sure that we've identified all confounders? What, are we, what if we don't know everything that we th think we know? And, and, and we, can, we have and we ha make mistakes when we don't know all about what we should be doing, even in something like a, vi a simple vitamin that should have no negative effects, it did, because we didn't know the biology, we didn't know the pathways well enough. So, that was a real problem. And this happened actually in multiple studies. It happened to me um, in, in a, Finland, a study in Finland and the study in the US where we gave them some, gave smokers similar uh, dr uh, micronutrients and uh, caught increased risk of cancer in all of these different studies. We thought we knew what we we're doing, but no. And um, so that put a huge uh, 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 problem for all chemo prevention studies, because they kind of thought the observational data was enough to guide these RCTs, and it clearly is not. And so mm -hmm. uh, pre chemo prevention literature really uh, uh, fell off uh, because people said, oh, we can't just know a good p-value from an observational study. We really have to know what's going on causatively, um, pathway, biologically, you know, all these things before we can start giving people even things that should be innocuous. Um, and so we learned lessons, but it set the field of chemo prevention by, behind by decades. And even now, chemo prevention is not really where it should be because we, we really clearly need to have um, strong biological causal inference before we want to give people anything. Um, so, yeah. Thanks. So, so the, the, the person who asked that, Fernando Rutia, is, is, oh, also was wondering what does it mean to be 100% sure right that's now getting into that's that's not that's like a, another session we can have on what on philosophy of, of probabilities and right and, and and association but but i would say to that is is that you i guess technically we can never be 100% sure no. but 
but we can get practically there. Yeah. And and there's and it's not necessarily through one study, but through many studies and a consensus, some kind of consensus of some 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 diverse group of scientists that get together. It could be the National Academy of Sciences or some some the equivalent in Europe or or some other continent. They all read all the literature and say, okay, this is we are convinced. And that's really at the end of the day how we how we come up, how we decide, right? It, it is by consensus. It's it's never like one with observational data. Right. I, I, I've never seen a case where one study just proves it. One observational study. Yeah. And and also, you know, it's a combination of different kinds of data. So it's not just observation. Right. Sure, yeah. It's the RCTs, it's the biology, it's all of the things that go into making a decision. And again, I go back to when, when you think about, is there a way to be 100% sure? Um, no, I don't think you can ever be that, but it, you go back to the risk benefit ratio because everything that you do has potential risks associated with it. And, you know, possibly. I mean, you, you ha there, there may be things that are so safe that there, there are no risks, but there's always going to be some risk. Even if you give people aspirin, there's risk, you know, something that's common and used and we don't need a, uh, the, the aspirin clearly has benefits in chemo prevention for colon cancer or for other things, but there's still risk. If you give a a enough aspirin to some people, they will bleed. You know, there are always things that can go wrong. So I think we really have to be realistic in terms of our, our, our risk benefit ratio so that we, the harms are absolutely minimized, but the, um, the benefits are clear and, and, and as much data as we can collect to make that. Um, and, and it's really hard when you're talking about prevention. So when you're talking about treatment, people will put up with a lot of uh, side effects and harms because they are sick and they want to be cured. When you're talking about prevention, people's uh, tolerance for, for um, harms is you know, close to zero or zero maybe. Um, and, and partly that depends on how much risk you have. So if you have an extremely high risk, let's say you have a BRCA1 mutation and your lifetime risk of breast cancer is 50%, 70% and your lifetime risk of ovarian cancer is 40% or, you know, whatever the, the correct numbers are, um, that's high enough risk that you feel like you need to do something so you won't die of this cancer. Um, but uh, so you're willing to take higher risk. You're willing to have your ovaries removed prophylactically, for example, which has a lot of risks and causes a lot of side effects, but that risk is high enough that you may be willing to do that. If you're doing something in the general population, those risks probably are going to be very, very low. So again, it's also the setting that you're talking about, what level of risk, what it is you're trying to uh, prevent or mitigate and how motivated the person is to want to put up with any side effects that might exist. Excellent. I, I have one more question. Maybe I'll leave it for the end because I do want to uh, switch gears to some, some of the, uh, uh, the other topics about disparities. Yep. So you've, you've do, also done important research in disparities incidence or mortality by race. Can you, can you tell a little bit more, like some examples, some numbers that, that, that you've discovered um, through these studies? Well, I, um, a few things, a few made, uh, sort of take home points. One is that um, disparities exist in many ways. So we often think of disparities as by race or ethnicity. And there are some major disparities by race or ethnicity, but there are also disparities in, by age, by gender, by um, 
uh, disability, by uh, socioeconomic status, by residence. You know, they're, they're, so we need to think very broadly about what the, the disparities or inequities that there are out there that lead to differences in uh, your ability to get uh, care, prevention, treatment, whatever it might be. Um, so there's a broad range of things going on there that define disparities. And we need to think very broadly about how to address, understand each of those and then address them. Um, so just about every cancer, every disease really has some aspect of disparity in it. Um, and some are really profound. So for example, uh, I study prostate cancer and prostate cancer has the highest rates, highest mortality in African-American men compared to essentially every other population in, in the world or every other you know, cancer in the world. Um, it's a huge disparity uh, and it's incredibly complex to think about. So, um, what does it mean to say that uh, Afri an African-American or an African-American population has higher risk than a Caucasian population or an Asian-American population? It implies that uh, there's probably some uh, biology underlying this. There's some biology that makes the disease arise more frequently in African-Americans, but it also probably reflects the fact that African-Americans may have less access to early diagnosis or screening. They may get poorer care or different care. Uh, uh, there may be behavioral and lifestyle factors that add on to this. Uh, 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 you certainly uh, uh, skepticism and dis mistrust of the medical profession and not wanting to have screening, not wanting to have a digital rectal exam. Those are cultural behavioral things. So suffice it to say that it's not usually a simple thing where there's one factor that's causing the disparity. The disparity is usually a complex set of things and that um, you can't necessarily think about one thing at a time. Having said that, there are certainly individual um, act actions that one might be able to take to address disparities. Um, so for example, access to PSA screening might be a way of addressing um, the, the disparities problem, but it's only gonna address one piece of a very, very complex problem. And so it might be that the disparity needs to be addressed on multiple levels. And some of those are quite fundamental, you know, fundamental in terms of addressing structural racism in society, which is obviously not an easy thing to do, um, but something that, that might be the fundamental cause of a lot of these disparities. And so how do you think about uh, it when you wanna create an intervention to address a disparity, how do you think about addressing systemic racism, which is, some, is, a, is a problem of a magnitude and depth that few individual studies could really hope to address, uh, really. So uh, lots and lots of complex things going on there, um, but very interesting. Uh, the other thing that I would um, mention is that disparities are um, an opportunity in some ways to understand variability in disease, disease outcomes. Um, you know, if you're in, in, in data science and in epidemiology, the more variation you have, the more you have to work with. If everybody was kind of the same, there would be nothing to study, right? Um, there would, you need variability, you need variation in order to have uh, to study and find risk factors to understand, you know, what's going on to create that variability. And so disparities are an opportunity for us to understand a, a, the broadest scope of var variation in, in, in data and in risk and, in, in, you know, in the population and to use that knowledge or to leverage that variation to try to understand underlying ideological factors. So there is opportunity uh, in disparities. 
so I don't know. I can keep going, but <laughs> yeah, no, that's interesting. So, so how do you? What are the? What's what does the data look like to, to answer some of these questions? Like, like you just gave a great explanation of how complex this this can be. There's you know because there's biology, behavior, and then and then differences in in access. So and th those must be hard to parse out. Like, do, do you in these data sets do you have? enough information to at least try to parse some of these things out? Yeah, yeah, I mean, sometimes. Uh, and I think, you know, the point that you're making is a really important one, because what we were talking about before and what we're talking about now in terms of how epidemiology and observational studies work is we're very um, focused or reliant on a p-value and statistical power and approaches that are you know, very limiting in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that one of the things data science brings to us that has not been a traditional piece of epidemiology, although I think more and more it is, is the ability to find patterns in data uh, and to find uh, uh, subsets, uh, observations, associations that are not p-value dependent. Um, and I think that that's been a problem that we faced a lot is that our, our field, because again, we don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to have a lot of uh, type one or type two error. We don't want to uh, start giving people beta carotene when before we know that it's really going to be beneficial to them. We are super, super conservative about what we will call an association. Mm -hmm. And again, that might be appropriate in many ways, but when you're talking about these very complex uh, sets of factors that lead to a disparity or to disease, a complex disease risk, we need somebody to be uh, thinking about sort of discovery and of patterns that we can begin to build on. Um, because our p-values are going to miss a lot that's relevant, and we're never going to have power to find three, two or three or four-way interactions among mm -hmm. things. Data science brings that to and not non-linear interactions and non-linearities. It, it absolutely. I mean, if you look, I mean, if you look at what we do, our, again, our traditional methods. I think that the walls have been broken down a lot in recent years. But you know, we the assumptions that we make, you know, proportional hazards assumptions, linearity, normality, all of those things are. Well, first of all, we, we violate them all the time, I'm sure, and don't worry about it too much, but we do rely on those things. And we do, our p-values rely on all those things to be accurate and to get the right point estimates of things. And that to me is a, is a barrier uh, to finding patterns. And again, I wouldn't say that if I had a, uh, a neural network that found an interesting pattern, I would go right to a phase three mm -hmm. clinical trial but the complementary uh, nature of the many of the data science approaches to the epidemiological approaches are going to be something that will teach us more than if we don't cross these uh, disciplinary boundaries. Mm -hmm. No, and that's definitely, I can see that happening. I, I see a lot of, of statisticians getting in, into that world um, of, of trying to come up with new ways of looking for associations. And adjusting for confounders too. Yeah. So that that does how much of, of these data sets are public? I I haven't worked like I, a lot of my work is based on public data sets, relies on public, but I, I haven't really delved into the world of epidemiological big cohort studies in cancer. Is that so? I don't know. Is there is it common to make these public or or are they kept, um, you know, private for for further 
research in the future. So the general philosophy uh, recently in the last, recently the last 10, 20 years is that all data should be made public. And this is something that's a mandate from the NIH and other funding bodies. What hasn't happened is the data have not been made public the way genomic data have. There's no dbGaP equivalent for epidemiological cohort data. And on the one hand, um, the data are, should be made public. Everybody wants to make the data as public as possible. Uh, on the other hand, there's been a lot of hesitation in the field because there's a lot of ways to misuse the data. Uh, I suppose that's true of any data set, um, but people are very concerned about the misuse, the mis uh, uh, misanalysis of data if you just put it all out there publicly. Um, that's a little paternalistic and may not be really completely appropriate, but I think that people have been uh, uh, concerned about this. And so what usually is the case is that all of these individual cohorts have a mechanism by which you can apply for the data. And so you can say, here's my question, here's what I'm going to do as analysis. And, and, and again, it's not, a, not always a complete scientific review, but at least it's some sort of, yes, this is a reasonable question, and yes, you know what you're doing. Uh, to work with these data, and they're pretty much uh, open access after some, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of review of the pro protocol. So it's not a DB gap where you can just go in and get things. But so then, how, how does let's suppose some someone in our audience wants to get, use that data, and analyze, is it some you email the the first author, or what is it? What is the procedure? Yeah. yeah um, so again, for the large cohorts. There's a, a, a group called the co Cohort Consortium, which is led by NCI, overseen by NCI. And the Cohort Consortium is essentially all the big cohorts um, that have ever published anything. And so you can go directly to the Cohort Consortium and apply directly to them for data from a specific study or all the studies or subset of studies. And there's a form that you can use to directly apply for those data. Uh, and then, but you can always go to the uh, individual PIs of the, the cohorts and say, I think your data is appropriate, can I get it? And um, they all have their uh, own uh, system where they, you know, vet the, the protocol, the project. Uh, a lot of times it's just to make sure somebody else isn't working on exactly the same thing with the same data, but sometimes there's some tiny scientific uh, concerns raised, et cetera. Um, so there's a lot of different ways of accessing it, but it's always, uh, these days, everything in, more or less is intended to be available to anyone who's qualified to use it, I think. Okay, that's good to hear. Yeah. You should, you should call it the, the cohort of cohorts. That group. Yeah, it, well, it is kind of, that's what the cohort consortium is, because they, they uh, figure out how to harmonize the data among all these cohorts and bring them together. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it is essentially that. Good. So the last, I, we're running out of time. We ran out of time, but I just, I, okay. I do want to ask that this last question. So, so there's a lot of you. You alluded to this earlier, but there's a lot of news media articles that that have a headline saying X causes cancer, uh, and you know they they come out all the time, and often they come from one study on animals or or some very small observational study. It's it's hard to tell from the meat from the news article. So what do you recommend we do, those of us that want to, we see an article like that, what, is, what would you do to, to just find out what, what exactly is this? Like, because often they don't even have the, the paper they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so is I, there maybe, maybe a place where you have like, 
list of everything that's come out that's 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 a big core that has been done by by that has been that has had some kind of consensus about yeah like how do you parse out all those yeah well as you can imagine that's really hard because the science is not always clear even after you've gotten um a, a good study it uh, and you know ultimately it's very confusing to the population because we keep changing our mind about things on the other hand it's actually what's supposed to happen we're supposed to publish science and the science is supposed to change as we gain more knowledge so it's a good thing that new science is coming out your question about how we decide what's real or not there are um, a number of locations uh the nci the cdc iarc uh, a number of places where uh, we have um, good information about what's real and what's not. Um, oftentimes those come from uh, systematic review and meta-analyses. Mm -hmm. Things that are really very clear often have had uh, a meta-analysis that sort of says, yes, we believe this, it's been done enough. There's consistency, there, is a common, there are common point estimates, there's, there's enough knowledge that's aggregated that we can trust this result. And so many of the major websites, CDC, uh, NCI, et cetera, um, summarize what we know. AICR, the American Institute for Cancer Research, does that for nutrition. So there are sites that are uh, sort of trusted sources that have summarized the knowledge, summarized the systematic reviews and things like that. And there are also uh, sort of Snopes-like websites that are like, uh, this is um, uh, false, this is not real. Um, you know, uh, antiperspirants cause breast cancer, you know, things like that. Where but they... let me say, there's something in between. Now, that's true. I, I, yeah. Those are easy to catch. Yeah. But there's some that are in between. Yeah. It's like the, 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 the one, the one study came out. Yes. And it's a good study and it's, they did it right, but it's just one yeah. <laughs> as opposed to a, a consensus of many, many papers. That's the distinguish, distinction that I think is a little harder to make for us, for those that are just reading the, yeah. the regular press. And true for us in the in the field as well. I mean, one good study is provocative and interesting. It makes you want to follow up more. I would say if that study is not, you know, you can uh, do a, and we do all the time, a grading, a formal grading analysis of, you know, what, mm -hmm. is this free from bias? Is the study got a uh, sufficient power? Is it, you know, was the, you know, there are objective ways that we look at data and results to make sure that there we get a, a strong grade of for the study and that helps to do it but with one study it's very unlikely that that's going to translate into something that is an intervention that people will use that will be a policy change a practice change uh etc and 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 so i would say one good study is is interesting very rarely is that a policy or practice changing uh, event particularly in the observational epidemiological literature. I, I wouldn't say there isn't any ever, but I would say that would be unusual and we wouldn't take a single good study as a uh, to, to, to move forward with in any kind of a public health or practice kind of way uh, before we have that aggregate data validation, things like that. And then also, most of these studies are done in white majority populations, you know, translating that out into minority populations or other groups is always, you know, the, uh, you know, how generalizable this is, things like that. There are a lot of other questions that fall down to uh, whether you can make this a practice or policy changing event. Uh, and so there's, it's, it, it happens very slowly and it's very difficult for all of us to, to try to get to 
what cause what's a good enough amount of data with quality to to believe it uh, in a policy whatever setting. All right, all right. This has been very instructional, interesting. So I want to thank you for participating, for answering all our questions. If you have any last words for a group of statisticians, computational biologists, other data scientists that might be interested in this area, are interested in helping in any way or yeah, getting involved. Just to say that um, we, we need you. The people who are thinking creatively about analytical tools or design tools or whatever, the, uh, the fields of epidemiology and data science shouldn't be distinct as distinct as they are we should be able to talk to one another more and uh we there's a lot that can be done if the novel methods and thought approaches uh in your field can uh leverage the things that we're trying to achieve in epidemiology so please contact me or anybody in the field to try to work together build methods because we really can do more together excellent well thanks again bye-bye everybody Thank you. take care see you next time bye-bye